Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I'm Emma Winters, CMS's Communications Coordinator. In this episode, you'll hear CMS's researcher, Mike Nicholson, speak with David Fitzgerald. Theodore E. Gildred Chair in U.S.-Mexico Relations, Professor of Sociology, and Co-Director of the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at the University of California, San Diego. David is a frequent commenter to local, national, and international media. He was honored with the Award for Public Sociology from the International Migration Section of the American Sociological Association in 2013. And he's written three books, including Culling the Masses, The Democratic Roots of Racist Immigration Policy in the Americas, which won the American Sociological Association's Distinguished Scholarly Book Award. David's latest book, Refuge Beyond Reach, How Rich Democracies Repel Asylum Seekers, is now available from Oxford University Press. Now, here's Mike and David. Thank you for joining us in New York today, David. Um, So you've written and researched extensively on immigration policy and asylum. Um, In Refuge Beyond Reach, you write about what you call remote controls. What are remote controls? And what are some common forms of remote controls? Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, The idea of remote controls was first developed by Aristide Zolberg. And this was a political scientist who worked extensively on migration policy around the world And what he noticed was that beginning in the 19th century, governments started pushing their border control very far away from their territories. And he was referring to efforts to prevent people from simply getting on boats in Europe and coming to the U.S. without any kinds of controls. And the fact that those controls started in European ports. So this is an idea that he developed, and I've taken that and run with it to show the wide range of ways that governments try to keep people from ever reaching their territories without passing through some kind of selection process. So specifically, we're talking about things like uh, visa policy. That might seem like a a natural thing that people should get a visa before they try to go to a country, but that's actually pretty new in human history. That's something that started systematically around World War I. You also have remote controls at sea with maritime interceptions by the Coast Guard, for example. Uh, You have air carrier sanctions that um, fine air carriers, the airlines that bring passengers who are not admissible and require those airlines to transport the passenger back to the place that they uh, embarked from. So there's a whole range of, of remote controls. Some of them are highly visible and some of them are really taking place behind the scenes. And why do states use these remote controls rather than simply, for example, tightening their asylum policies for those that arrive at their borders? One of the main reasons that governments try to keep asylum seekers from ever touching their toe onto their soil is that once someone touches their toe onto, say, U.S. soil, there is a whole range of rights that they have access to. They have access to constitutional rights under the U.S. Constitution that anyone has, regardless of whether or not they're a citizen or regardless of their legal status. And then they also have rights under international law. And specifically when it comes to asylum seekers, uh, they have the right not to be returned into the arms of their persecutors. They have the, the right not to be refouled is the, is the legal term. And um, are remote controls a new phenomenon? There have been a lot of remote controls that have been forgotten. But almost all of the different features of remote control that you can find 
today in the, the rich democracies of the global north were originally developed to try to keep Jews fleeing Europe bottled up in places like Germany. Um, and so whether you're talking about maritime interceptions or restrictive visa policies, uh, going after smuggling networks, publicity campaigns to try to keep people from leaving, a whole panoply of, of measures, those were used by countries in the Americas, including the United States, uh, by the British authorities in Palestine, and by liberal European countries like Switzerland and, uh, and the UK to keep Jews from being able to reach places of safety. What's new now is that you have a, a global system of remote controls that don't just target one particular nationality um, and that are, are used often deliberately to keep asylum seekers from coming, um, or they're simply trying to control migration generally and it affects asylum seekers along with many other kinds of travelers. Do states face any constraints in their applications of remote controls? So there are, there are constraints, but it's only particular kinds of remote controls that are constrained. So when it comes to the air passenger system, there are really very few constraints on what states do. This is a, an area of policy that is highly securitized. Um, and that's been intensified since 9-11, but even going back into the, to the 1970s because of all of the skyjackings and so forth, there are a lot of state security controls around air travel. And those same controls are used to stop asylum seekers and many other kinds of, of travelers. So because of that and because most of those controls take place on another country's territory, there are very few, say, judicial constraints also on what states are able to do in that domain. When it comes to some other areas of policy, like attempts to play with definitions of the border and to create more restrictive rules around spaces right at the, the borderline or around territories like Guantanamo that are controlled by the U.S. but are not considered sovereign U.S. territory, there you can see the courts having a, a more constraining power. And in, in Europe, you see the courts having a, a pretty strong constraining power even when it comes to remote controls at sea, because all members of the European Union are, are also under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights and Strasbourg. And that court has issued a number of really important rulings to keep states from doing exactly what they want willy-nilly. So most importantly, the courts have said that if one of those member states like Italy um, intercepts people on the high seas, they can't simply return them into uh, harm's way uh, because even though those interceptions take place in international waters, the Italian government has effective jurisdiction over the passengers. That's the kind of constraint you see from supranational courts in the European context that you don't see in the case of, say, the U.S. or Canada or Australia. The Australian courts have been pretty weak on constraining what their executive has tried to do because they don't have a Bill of Rights. So the extent to which these constraints operate really varies across the countries that we look at. Um, as well as over time, and then by the specific techniques of remote control. How about uh, civil society? Does, does civil society play a role in constraining remote controls? Yeah, civil society plays a really important role, especially when it comes to efforts to monitor what's going on in buffer states. Buffer states are countries between countries of origin of uh, asylum seekers and their, their final destinations. So Mexico, for example, or Indonesia, Morocco, these are all major buffer states. And 
Thinking about the case of Mexico in particular, you can see a much more dense uh, civil society developing in Mexico around these issues. You have uh, organizations that specialize in human rights, that specialize in the rights of, of migrants. There's a lot of media attention, both uh, national and international in Mexico. Um, you, you have some agencies that are quasi-autonomous within the Mexican government, for example, that also monitor these kinds of, uh, of abuses of migrants and keep an eye on what the, gov the government is doing to try to prevent them from passing. And, and, and that's important because that kind of information is used in landmark uh, legal cases. So if, if you look historically at, at cases that have restrained state efforts at remote control, they're very often, the courts are very often relying on reports from organizations like Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch, and also elements within governments that are concerned about human rights, such as the U.S. State Department, which annually releases a, um, a, a report on uh, human rights abuses in, in most of the world's countries. So, so the courts rely on that information to determine, for example, whether or not a country is really a safe third country, whether it's really safe to return um, asylum seekers to a particular country. And, and so that's where civil society plays an exceptionally important role. Yeah. And of course, I mean, there's it's very political, the decision of whether a country is safe. It is. It is definitely a political decision. It's a, it's, it's a legal decision, but it also relies on information. And, uh, you know, a judge sitting in uh, his or her chambers in, in the U.S. doesn't know from personal experience what those conditions are and, and relies on, on this kind of um, civil society input. So in your book, you mentioned several policies that the U.S. government has implemented in order to manage Central American migration, including the placement of attaches in Central America, the creation of biometrics databases and publicity campaigns, which we already discussed a little bit, um, to discourage irregular migration. Um, the U.S. government also recently concluded a safe third country agreement with Guatemala. Um, how, has the U.S. government's approach to managing asylum flows from Central America changed over time? Yeah, so those approaches have changed over time, but the goal of controlling migration from Central America, including people who were coming to seek asylum and people fleeing different forms of violence, has a pretty long history. So since the early 1980s, the U.S. government has been involved in one form or another of those efforts. What's changed is that in the early 1980s, which was the height of the civil wars in Central America, specifically in El Salvador and Nicaragua and Guatemala, the U.S. invested billions of dollars, or I should say spent billions of dollars on military aid to those countries. And that was done very explicitly and publicly, in part with the goal of keeping refugees from reaching the U.S. So Ronald Reagan spoke very openly about this in his public speeches, that if the U.S. didn't contain communism in Central America, that that would release even more refugees to come to the U.S., so that military intervention, it also involved U.S. Uh, trainers, for example, U.S. soldiers training local troops. That money, the, that kind of training was part of an effort to contain refugees in Central America. The U.S. also financed, in part, the construction of refugee camps in southern Mexico. Um, these were camps primarily for Guatemalans, but to a lesser extent for Salvadorans. And the U.S. was also instrumental in uh, pressuring the Mexican government to allow the UNHCR to establish its operations in Mexico. So those are features of the control system that, that we don't see right now. 
But what we do see, and what's really changed um, during the Trump administration compared to previous administrations, is the open bullying of Central American and the Mexican government to control migration flows. There's a long history of pressure behind the scenes to control those flows. But what's different now is that it's done so explicitly, so openly, so aggressively, and also tied to pretty big sticks, such as the Trump administration's threats to tax remittances of Central American countries, such as Guatemala, if they don't sign on to a safe third country agreement. That's what really distinguishes the, the current period from what we've seen historically. You argue that courts and civil society can constrain the use of remote controls in countries such as the U.S. Uh, which constraints, if any, govern the processing and treatment of asylum seekers apprehended or detained in Mexico and Guatemala? You know, that's a great question, and it's a, it's a very dynamic question. And so we, we don't know the full extent to which there will be constraints. But one of the interesting things going on in Guatemala right now is that we're seeing the Guatemalan judiciary step up. And the Guatemalan um, courts have said, the high court has said that the Guatemalan outgoing president cannot simply sign an agreement with the United States to make Guatemala a safe third country without the input and, and passing a law on the part of the Guatemalan Congress. So this is interesting because it's not just a question of what the courts in rich liberal countries like the US or Canada are saying. Um, increasingly, we're seeing courts in other places like Papua New Guinea and Argentina also weighing in on these questions and sometimes pulling back their executives. It's an open question as to what extent that's going to finally determine what happens with policy in a place like Guatemala. But, but I think it is um, important. And there are many countries, such as in Mexico, where the judiciary does not have a tradition of reigning in executive power. It'll be interesting to see what, what happens there. I think what's more important, probably broadly speaking in the region, is the fact that, as I was saying before, that you have so many more uh, civil society monitors. You also have a lot of organizations in the United States, and you have particular political entrepreneurs in the U.S. and, and some powerful people. You have senators, for example, who have taken on the, the goal of making sure that U.S. aid to build up the enforcement capacity of these countries is not used for human rights abuses. And I'm not saying that that aid is not used for human rights abuses, but simply that you have people who are in positions of power and influence who, who care about this issue and who are trying to monitor the way that that money is used in a way that you probably didn't see uh, 30 years ago. And the U.S. government is currently requiring some asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their cases are processed, right? Um, would you say that this represents this uh, remain in Mexico policy is new? Or would you say that it has some sort of historical parallel or precedent in, in um, looking at the history of engagement between the U.S. and Mexico with respect to um, these remote controls, controlling asylum flows? One of the things that I was surprised to find in researching this book is that there is some precedent for that, but it is a remain in the U.S. policy that the Canadian government developed um, in the 1980s and deployed episodically, including in the 2000s. This was primarily used for Central American asylum seekers who would pass through the United States, had applied at a Canadian port of entry, were given a date for a hearing in Canada, and then returned to the U.S. to wait. 
And in some cases, the UNHCR found that the U.S. government deported those people before they ever had a chance to have a hearing of their case in Canada, and they were deported back to Central America. And so the Canadian government stopped that policy um, and reserved the right to implement it again, but in practice stopped that policy. So that is a, a, a bit of a precedent. I think it's a precedent that highlights the dangers of a uh, remain in some other country policy. The remain in Mexico policy is, uh, is a novelty in the U.S.-Mexico uh, context. And you mentioned a, a global system of remote controls. Is this a phenomenon that we're seeing outside of the countries that you um, discuss in your book, basically, you know, um, U.S., Canada, Australia, and the European Union? Are we seeing this in elsewhere, maybe in Asia or Africa? Or You mentioned Argentina. Mm -hmm. So countries throughout the world uh, use visa policies for remote control. That's something that's become standardized. And, and some of the most restrictive visa policies are, are actually in, in Asia and Africa. But very few countries have the capacity to implement effective remote controls abroad the way that the US and the European Union and Australia and Canada have. So for example, all of those countries that I just mentioned um, deploy airport liaison officers who are stationed in airports around the world and don't have legal authority, but they tell airlines whether or not to admit uh, passengers onto an aircraft, uh, or whether or not to allow passengers onto an aircraft to fly to a place like Canada or the U.S. Very few countries around the world have the capacity to deploy those kinds of controls. They don't have the long-range um, maritime interception capacity the way that the U.S. and uh, Europe and Australia have, for example. So parts of the system are in place for a broader set of countries, uh, mostly these documentary controls, but others are, are really particular to these rich liberal democracies. Thank you. No one can predict the future, but what do you think the future impact of some of the remote controls in place right now might be, both in the U.S. and elsewhere? I think the biggest impact is that it's becoming increasingly difficult for someone who is fleeing violence or persecution to be able to reach a place of safety. There are very few legal avenues to do that. The resettlement avenues for refugee resettlement were never very wide. Even at their height, they were only resettling not even 1% of the world's refugee population. Uh, those resettlements have been slashed under the Trump administration, which is exceptionally important because the U.S. historically has been the, the number one country of refugee resettlement. Um, diplomatic asylum, where someone goes to a, a consular post abroad and asks for asylum, is illegal in many countries, and it's never business as usual in any country. That's really something that has only been used as a way to, to gain asylum by a handful of prominent dissidents. But for kind of a, an everyday person fleeing violence, that's not an option. And so these remote controls are making it almost impossible for someone to legally travel to be able to reach a place of safety. Well, thank you very much. Um, we look forward to reading your future work as a way to navigate these shifting policies. So this year, you have a new book out from Oxford University Press called Refuge Beyond Reach, How Rich Democracies Repel Asylum Seekers. It's available on OUP, OxfordUniversityPress.com, Amazon. Um, how else can people follow your work? So I have a Twitter handle, Fitzgerald UCSD. Um, all my information is available on the website of the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies, and I'm happy to uh, take questions from your listeners. Thank you very much. 
Thank you. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by Daniel Duberstein and The Music Case. To get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org.